Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The rise of memes could influence political discourse, or is it already doing that? It's a question that Joan Donovan discusses in her book, Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Memes that started as jokes now have the power to inspire political supporters and opponents. Here to help us understand those influences is Joan Donovan herself. Welcome to the show, Joan. Great to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Joan, want to kick off this conversation by asking a very simple but complicated question. What exactly is a meme? It's an interesting question because, um, you know, many of us don't realize that memes are the building block of culture and we use them every day as shortcuts and they've come to be encapsulated in these little images with these funny sayings online. And so you've probably shared memes like grumpy cat in the past, uh, but they're, they're just these little, um, you know, packages where we can move culture between generations and, they often come in the form of uh, just short sayings. Like if you think about something very integral to the identity of America, for instance, like uh, the Uncle Sam poster that says, I want you. Uh, It's a very early version of a meme. Uh, But most importantly, it conveys more than it says. And we see them becoming much more important Um, in our culture with the integration of the internet in everybody's house and now throughout all of our workplaces where there are ways of, you know, sometimes just getting an idea across or laughing about some kind of contradiction or irony. Uh, But more and more, our politicians are using them to package fairly complex political ideas uh, into uh, these short sayings, for instance, like stop the steal, which conveys a lot more about election fraud than it does just about uh, this simple three word phrase. Well, I love that you brought up the Uncle Sam poster because I was thinking that this is very similar to maybe political cartoons or posters and whatnots. And I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people out there that um, we now use memes to converse with each other as jokes. But what we're talking about today is very far from that. And I want to ask, how did you come to understand first how memes were used to influence political discourse? So um, I really came of political age in the 90s um, around anti-war protests. And so when you're part of protest movements, uh, you know, you become accustomed to these phrases like this is what democracy looks like. But if you trace those phrases back in time, a phrase like that uh, shows up also during the Vietnam War. 
And so when I was doing the research with my co-authors, Emily Dreyfus and Brian Friedberg, we decided to start the book during Occupy Wall Street because that was a moment where there were a lot of memes circulating into broad, you know, very different broad audiences online. And they were doing something that we think is really important about some memes, which is that they can move from the wires to the weeds. They can help people see their place in a movement. And so we began with the Occupy movement because that was the first time globally that we've really seen the internet be at the center of organizing a large-scale political operation. And But we don't tell the story from the perspective of anarchists and uh, the organizers of Occupy. There's some great books about that. We tell the perspective from someone like Alex Jones or uh, the fans of Ron Paul that were so animated by End the Fed. And so our history of Occupy is one where we try to show how the right wing learned from leftist social movements how to animate uh, crowds using memes. Well, I remember covering several local Occupy movements, so it's it's interesting that it's kind of coming back full circle here. Can you talk about with the Occupy movement, is that something that was mobilized from the internet? Is that something that had popular ideas that were born out of the movement? Yeah, so I, I think Occupy really came together because there were a couple of important major social changes going on, especially in our economy. But frames that help us understand the world like banks got bailed out, we got sold out, really um, became these ways in which you could participate in politics online, you could spread these memes, but there, for the first time, was a place you could go and be part of a movement where these memes were prevalent, but also animating. And another thing that I think was important that was really understudied about Occupy was the way in which right-wing actors, libertarians were learning from leftist social movements, the power of place, uh, which is perhaps ironic to be talking about at the same time that they're organized and finding each other through the internet, which, um, you know, has come to represent spacelessness in our society. But when we think about it, the internet is this uh, locus where people from all kinds of different places can find one another and then get coordinated. And so the book's progression really centers on these moments where you have something germinating online, a big public discussion, and then that turns into on-the-ground protest. And we will be speaking of this throughout this conversation, and, and you kind of touched on the way memes play a very significant role in mobilizing these movements. But what about mobilizing individuals, which obviously they go into these bigger movements, but how does that span out, you know, having one person getting interested in this and it just kind of blows up a little bit? 
Yeah. So recruitment is such an interesting thing because I think when we talk about um, social movements and we could take an anti-social movement like the KKK and talk about them as this organization, when we think about recruitment, we think about literally people joining a movement. Maybe they even have um, you know, a hat that they wear, uniform, or they have a, a a business card. But there's something much more diffuse about the way people discover one another online. And you don't always feel like you're uh, joining necessarily an organization to be part of a movement. And with individuals, um, we go pretty in-depthly into someone like Dylan Roof, who believed that um, in committing mass murder, um, he was the mass murderer um, in Charleston, South Carolina, that murdered um, church parishioners. He believed that this individual action would spark a race war. And so you do see individuals who will go online and self-radicalize. They'll become part of these bigger movements. For him, he was active on different white supremacist social media message boards. And then through that self-radicalization, uh, see themselves as part of a, a bigger movement than just themselves. And we try to show how the use of humor and levity and politics and, and memes really can uh, bring people into these rabbit holes and and uh, and if they get stuck there and believe that violence is the only way out, um, then we have um, you know something much more dangerous afoot. And what we try to do is is move the book along a trajectory so that you can understand how perhaps everyday people might end up finding themselves. Um, at a place like the insurrection. So in your book, you use the term red-pilled right. Can you explain what that is and how it developed out of meme culture? Yeah, so I mean, most of us are familiar with The Matrix and there's the scene in the movie where, uh, you know, there's a choice between a blue pill, which will uh, leave you in this serene but perhaps dull world that you live in, or you could take the red pill and be woken up to the corruption. Um, and this, I, you know, corruption and vileness of, of those that run the world and you, and you see things as they truly are. And so this notion of the red pill became very uh, useful to the far right online. And they would talk about leaving red pills around the internet, like as in terms of content, like YouTube videos or blog posts, hoping that people who are using certain keywords would find these red pills, which point out these uncomfortable contradictions in the world. Um, and sometimes they're not that obvious. Sometimes these contradictions exist and maybe we do want to have dialogue about them, but a very important red pill um, for this current generation of Zoomers and millennials was the idea that George Zimmerman, who's the man that uh, shot and killed Trayvon Martin, the idea that he was a white Hispanic. This was the first time 
in media history that the term white Hispanic was being widely used. And for people online that were not part of the far right, but had questions about this new racialized terminology, if they were looking for a broader explanation of what it meant to be a white Hispanic, and they were searching for it on these platforms, they would often be prod into far right spaces who would explain in their own ideology that white Hispanic was another way to demonize white people in the media. Um, And so the issues about Trayvon's death became less about Trayvon Martin and more about race in America and those dynamics. And, and that red pill, that, that contradiction, that confusion around the term white Hispanic um, for several of the white supremacists that we studied um, over the last few years will cite that moment of trying to understand Zimmerman's race as something that brought them into this world. And for Dylan Roof, um, it was, he was also trying to understand why it was a big deal that Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin. And he got introduced to the the term black on white crime, which is what brought him into a rabbit hole of information about uh, crime in black communities. And for Roof, of course, he took it way too far. Uh, but for other people, it's a much more incremental change where there are these data voids of information that they're looking for. And they're not necessarily looking for racist content or the uh, uh, like reinforcement of those beliefs. They're looking for answers. And that's what's perhaps the most important and most uh, broken part of our information ecosystem is that people are most vulnerable when they're seeking answers and they have these questions. And if we don't have answers for them in these places that are more balanced or more fair or aren't uh, leading them through into these dangerous ideologies, then um, they can end up like Dylan Roof. And I was going to say you basically answered this question, but I want to come back to Dylan Roof in a little bit, um, t- touching on the fact that you know people get sucked into these internet rabbit holes, as you've mentioned earlier, wanting to seek out more information or just to learn about it. How does that impact these movements, and how does that impact sort of the global and local scale? It's a really good question because. Um, you know, for many years, I lived in Los Angeles and had been studying the Internet. And Los Angeles is is a very global hub of the world. You meet all kinds of different people and um, there's a lot of movers and shakers. But there's also this very local activist culture around police brutality, around the, you know, corporatization of the Los Angeles police departments especially their militarization. They have, you know, actual military vehicles and whatnot. And these movements that struggle to break through um, do have resonance in place. And so when Black Lives Matter um, became a household saying, we don't 
always understand its lineage, but it actually begins um, in L.A., where you had activists that had come out of the Justice for Trayvon Martin movement. There was the Million Hoodies March, which really brought attention to these issues. But you had this locus of activism where you had very powerful entertainers and um, celebrities who were showing up to in-person meetings, uh, organizing with local activists around the notion of Black Lives Matter. And all you had to do to find these meetings was go on Twitter and look at BLMLA hashtag or Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And so what's interesting and what grew out of Occupy, which also did this nice localization thing is you'd have, you know, Occupy Wall Street as a hashtag, but you'd also have Occupy Boston or, you know, Occupy Yale or any any other way to localize these protests. And Black Lives Matter really learned how to use those memes around hashtags to localize protest. And so it wasn't long before the notion of Black Lives Matter moved from Los Angeles and into broader part of um, the U.S. And that, I think, is the power of the local and the national, because if L.A. hadn't been so well organized already, it probably wouldn't have been easy to bring this movement into the forefront and and to really make that, um, which I think Black Lives Matter is probably the most powerful meme um, of the Internet. Uh, it wouldn't have been able to happen if people hadn't been organizing around it in a local place. We've got about two minutes left here, but I do want to ask because you mentioned the BLM and Occupy, and it's interesting, you know, over the 20 years that there's a connection there. How has the war against what were called social justice warriors started and evolved? Oh, it's a good question. And, and we see this play out online uh, quite a bit because the notion of a social justice warrior is something that comes out of banter on Tumblr, uh, which not many people remember, unfortunately, but uh, there's a whole generation of people that got organized on Tumblr and weirdly enough, Occupy Wall Street that we are the 99% meme had its place on Tumblr. Um, but when we're thinking about this trajectory uh, between memes and movements, I think one of the main things is that the way people come to understand themselves and articulate themselves and then have that stitched into their identity uh, is because these movements are powerful both online and off, and they allow people to build that identity as they build their own social media and their own networks online they become a political person. And I think that these most recent generations of folks have learned to integrate that into their politics. And then uh, this has forced politicians, more traditional politicians, to use the internet in this way. You know, if you look at the trajectory of someone like Joe Biden, he didn't need social media to be a politician, but now he has to participate in social media to remain relevant. 
from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. You'll be listening to Joan Donovan. She's the research director for the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University. And we're talking about her book, Memoirs, the Untold Story of the Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. She'll stay with us to talk about how memes continue to mobilize far-right movements and also the future of those movements and how it impacts Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking with Joan Donovan about how political memes take Internet wars beyond the screen and into reality. She's the author of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. And she's with us to talk about how these groups change political discourse. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, following what we've been talking about earlier, Joan, uh, you've mentioned Alex Jones. He's just one of many online influencers that promotes these ideas and made them more mainstream. Can you talk about his impact? Yeah, so I've been following him for many, many years before um, the most recent dust-ups and fines. Um and he's been an interesting person because he's always been involved in or prior to these last few years in public television, public radio. And um, what he became known for, not many people know this history, is he, quote unquote, in his words, predicted 9-11. And this is because he had a um, episode of one of his podcasts in uh july before the attacks in um in september where he said that there was going to be some kind of attack on the u.s and that um you should call the pentagon and start complaining now and he didn't really say anything about it after that but people do put point back to this moment where he had made this prediction that there was going to be this attack uh, imminently in the United States. And the problem, of course, with remembering history in this way is that 
we don't remember all the other things that he predicted that didn't come true. However, this gave him the legitimacy amongst crowds of people that later became known as truthers um, as someone that had insider knowledge, that had forbidden knowledge, in fact, that he was saying things that everybody else wouldn't say or didn't know, and he had some privileged line into U.S. and foreign intelligence. And so at that moment, he becomes very popular, but uh, media starts to turn their back on him. And that's when he's, he becomes this internet uh, evangelist in many ways. And, and when he does that, he has to think about, well, what's the infrastructure that I'm going to use and how am I going to get my messages out there? And so fast forward to Occupy, he's at Occupy um, in Texas, moving between different cities, uh, you know, getting people riled up about ending the Fed, getting people riled up about uh, this idea of the new world order, which is a meme that goes back much further than him, but he really popularized it, getting people to think about the deep state or this idea that the people we elect are just puppets for this, um, quote unquote, deeper state that is uh, what he describes as um, being run by these globalists. There's a lot of anti-Semitic tropes that go along with his his um, conspiracy theories. But all the while, he grows this audience and he grows steadily with the conditions of the internet growing steadily where you have much more access to broadcast than any individual has ever had in the past. And he's able to weaponize things like YouTube because he becomes uh, someone who is making money off of advertising, money off of supplements, uh, money off of his audience. And the infrastructure that he's using for broadcast to reach millions of people is free. Um, and so the movement to deplatform him in 2018 wasn't just about, well, who is Alex Jones and what is he doing? But it was also about this broad recognition that something in our media system had changed and that these major corporations were benefiting from content that was harmful in the case of Alex Jones, directly harmful to families in Sam, Sandy Hook. And so I view that moment in 2018 around the deplatforming of Alex Jones as this watershed moment in internet history, where for the first time we see corporations reflecting on their culpability uh, in the spreading of all of these uh, anti-Semitic and racist tropes the, uh, through Alex Jones. Um, but fast forward to the present, he's been uh, routinely um, deplatformed now. Anytime he tries to start up something new, um, it is uh, quickly shut down. But that doesn't stop his fans and others from circulating his content and for him to be able to remain relevant in this uh, new media ecosystem. 
And I see these impacts clearly have a larger, a much larger influence than we could ever think coming out from a meme or from an individual or from a group. But can you talk about how these groups change what the GOP stands for? You know, speaking of uh, these memes impacting political discourse, when did the term alt-right really start to take hold and influence the Republican Party? Yeah, so uh, this is another history that is something that is very recent. And so many of us live through it, but we perhaps don't understand how entwined it was with the rise of Trump, which is to say that Bannon was really the bridge between MAGA and Trump and the rise of this um, set of fairly online um neo-white supremacists that are um, millennial, Gen Z, the people that would find something like the KKK cringy. They, you know, they're not on board with that kind of um, aesthetic. And in many ways, this is an aesthetic. Um, but the alt-right was this brand of... Uh, you know, slick looking, suit wearing, uh, button down white supremacy that made it kind of cool for younger per- people to be racist. And and part of that rise of the alt-right was intertwined with people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who were writers at Breitbart at the time that was um, operated by Steve Bannon. And so when Bannon links up with Trump, Trump is a conduit for Bannon. Trump is someone who will say these bombastic things in public to get a rise. Trump is, you know, also being aided by someone like Roger Stone, who considers himself a mentor to some of these younger folks that would claim the title of alt-right. And so you see this online movement coming together And there's all these different factions within it. We're talking about 2015, 2016. So at the same time that you get someone like Richard Spencer, who owned altright.com and therefore was considered the origin story of the alt-right, but the term had been much more widely used than just him. Um, You have that happening at the same time that you have a group like the Proud Boys who ostensibly have a very similar ideology, but want to differentiate themselves from Richard Spencer and his ilk, because you really have this fight between these very egoistic personalities over who is going to be the leader of the street movement around uh, the rise of MAGA. And of course, these constituencies last uh, together for some time until uh, the Unite the Right rally in in um, 2017 in August, where Heather Heyer is uh, killed in in a protest, and and hundreds of others are injured. Um, and in that moment, you see the fracture and the fissure within this social movement of the alt right, which has tried to rebrand numerous times. Um, but I think the other point I would want to make about this is that the alt-right itself became a meme in the sense that there was a real struggle over the definition for it. And mainstream media really couldn't quite grasp 
why or how to describe a movement like this because the movement was so online and so much of a trickster in the sense that it, it the movement really liked the confusion caused by having people in their movement that were Hispanic or Latino. And so it was hard for the media to call these groups racist because there were people of color involved in these movements. Um, but nevertheless, I think broadly what it showed us is that these anti-Semitic tropes, these deeply racist anti-Black tropes are part and parcel of our political arena and they do animate people to action. And someone like Trump, who's able to use these dog whistles and these coded messages, was really able to tap into that energy uh, through things like build the wall um, or um, jobs, not mobs. Um, and in doing so, uh, really had a lively online fan base that were willing to harass incite and um spread hate uh if they thought it was going to give them some kind of political advantage well we've been talking about the internet obviously plays a huge role in being able to reach these individuals and movements and it seems like it's also very generational you mentioned earlier that you know the younger people are also coming out and sort of taking the helm on this so how are we continuing to see memes in all of their forms you know whether through tiktok or instagram or just your standard image memes continuing to influence the political dialogue and other conversations here in the us yeah i think that there's um you know this moment that we're going through with the transition of twitter in particular to someone like Elon Musk, who who does communicate through memes and does talk a lot about NPCs, which in gaming is this idea of a non-playing character. So there are the people that you bump into along the way, and they're not being played by another person, but they're being played by the computer. And your interactions with those entities are often very routine. They're very predictable. So... Um, you know, the, another meme that Elon likes to use is this notion of the woke mind virus, this idea that people are infected with a liberal ideology that, um, that has taken over and has uh, made it impossible for them to think independently. Um, of course, the trope about using this term woke comes out of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, where that term became very popular, um, a meme in, of itself, but also on the right now has come to represent um, an anti-Black agenda. So uh, the notion of the woke mind virus is something that he will talk about on his um, Twitter account, but it's all veiled in coded messages. The thing about memes that I think is most pronounced is that um, they have in-groups and out-groups. So you're going to see memes all day long and you're not going to know what they mean. And so they're, the messaging is just going to go quickly past you. And because there's such short interactions, we don't always notice them. But, you know, if anything, the listeners take away from this is to pay a little bit more attention 
to things you don't recognize and to get a sense of, well, is there something that I'm not being told explicitly, but is happening here uh, in this in this tweet that I'm reading or in this interaction or in this hashtag? Uh, because I do think that our politicians are going to be telling us a lot more about who they are and what they represent by using these kinds of veiled terminology and by trying to move politics along these lines. And it's not to say that only the right wing participates in this. There was a lot of discussion about uh, the don't say gay bill in Florida, which um, wasn't ostensibly accurate about what that bill was about, but the notion of don't say gay was very resonant and so that became the frame under which we understood that policy, um, which is different from debating the policies on their merits. And so we have to be very careful that we try to uncover more depth and more nuance uh, so that we know what we're really arguing about. Um, but unfortunately, our media particularly social media is just so good at packaging things in this way that it's going to be really hard for us to get nuance um, in these moments. So we got about a minute left, but I do want to ask really quickly about how these spaces have impacted the local communities. For example, in Taunton, Massachusetts, there were hostile uh, protesters who entered a library where there was a drag queen story hour taking place and shouting at the reader and disrupting the group. Can you talk about that? Yeah, unfortunately, these people do find each other online through um, different, you know, memes and uh, that OK Groomer meme is something that was born out of jokes online where Zoomers or Gen Z believes that everybody over 30 is a boomer. And it's funny. But the the meme of OK Boomer then turned into OK Groomer, which is this allegation that trans and LGBTQ folk are somehow pedophiles, um, really became resonant. And, and that's what's animating a lot of these attacks on Drag Queen Story Hour or any other kind of LGBTQ um, movement or event. You've been listening from Joan Donovan. She's the author of the book, Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. And she will continue to stay with us. Coming up next, we'll have Dr. Evan Prokoski, an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, who will help us contextualize how national meme wars impact where we live. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Understanding how political memes impact politics in the United States can be complicated, let alone the idea that it reaches far beyond where we live. Here to help us contextualize the global and lo local impacts of political memes is Dr. Evan Prokoski. He's an assistant professor at UConn. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Catherine. 
And Joan Donovan is still with us. She's the author of Mean Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Evan, want to just jump straight to it. Can you respond to what we've heard from Joan so far, which is a lot, and how we have seen far-right extremist groups spread and gain prominence? Yeah, Joan's work is really fascinating. And one of the things I like most about it is how it links to something we already know about how extremist groups recruit, which is they usually don't dive right into the most divisive and extremist messaging, but they lure people in with memes, with jokes, and with smaller issues that are maybe somewhat more palatable to the average person. And this helps us understand how relatively ordinary people can get swept up into these groups. And also this pathway isn't exactly unique to America or the far right either. And the other thing I really liked about Joan's work was how she described some of these groups of learning from each other, from their successful meme practices, if you will, and their messaging. Because that's another thing we know about these groups, that extremists communicate with each other to directly share information, but they also just watch the news and browse the internet. And so they learn about what works and what doesn't. Well, we've been focusing this conversation a lot about what's happening here at home, you know, here in the United States, but you've done studies too, um, looking into looking into the other side of the world. What does that look like in Europe? Yeah, so this isn't really a uniquely American pro- problem. And on the one hand, we've seen far-right political parties, which are obviously different, but these have gained ground in many countries worldwide. We've seen this in Sweden, Germany, France, and Italy in particular, where one far-right group with neo-fascist roots called the Brothers of Italy actually won the greatest percentage of votes in the 2022 election. Now, on the other hand, in many of these same countries, we've simultaneously seen far-right extremist groups, and not just the political parties, but organizing and growing. We've seen the Identitarian Movement in Germany, the Soldiers of Odin in Belgium, the Blood and Honor Organization in Portugal, and so on. And in fact, the European Union Security Commissioner, Julian King, said all the way back in 2017, so clearly showing this isn't a new phenomenon, he said, I'm not aware of a single EU member state that is not affected in some way by right-wing violent extremism. So this phenomenon is not pretty widespread and not necessarily new either. But one thing to note is that, kind of as Joan mentioned, these groups aren't independent. So we really shouldn't think of this as an American group or a, a European group or a European problem. But we've seen members of American extremist organizations travel to Europe to meet with their associates, to share information directly. And they're also watching each other, as Joan pointed out to us, learning from one another, too. And I was going to say, we've been talking also a lot about individuals impacting larger movements or the other way around. But we also have this idea of splinter groups, so groups that splinter out from those bigger movements. Can you talk about how that works? Yeah, so my published a book this past August called Divided Not Conquered, How Rebels Fracture and Splinters Behave. And it looks at this exact process. It tries to study how extremist groups break apart from their earliest internal disagreements to the emergence of these splinter groups that we see today. And when we say splinters, what I mean by that are these you know, breakaway groups from a larger organization that set out to become independent. And I find these splinters are actually pretty diverse. Uh, We have these connotations that they're usually more deadly or more dangerous, really durable organizations, but that's not always the case. You know, some certainly are, but it really depends on why they're breaking away and what they want to achieve. So we shouldn't try to paint all these splinter groups and breakaway organizations with a broad brush. And one thing we do know is that splinters are a lot more common after some event creates uncertainty in an extremist organization. 
It could be the arrest of a top leader or a high profile setback or failure that prompts group members to reconsider their allegiance and the direction of the overall organization. And this is exactly what's happened to the far right groups in the U.S. over the last couple of years, where fractures have really started to occur and to ramp up after January 6th and the subsequent arrests and crackdowns, both on individual members and also on the group's leadership. And for instance, the St. Louis branch of the Proud Boys left the national organization and they wrote on Telegram that the group needs new leadership in a new direction. And the split was also motivated by an important revelation that their leader, Enrique, Enrique Tarrio, had previously been a government informant, which no doubt undermined confidence in his leadership abilities and made people not want to be part of that organization. And just like the Proud Boys in Missouri and North Carolina, chapters of the Oath Keepers also broke away. So overall, we can't necessarily say that splinter groups in the far right are going to behave one way or another. These are usually just opportunities to kind of reshuffle group members during these moments of internal turmoil and unrest and uncertainty. And this doesn't bring us any closer to their defeat either, which is something we often assume. And sometimes these splits just create new groups that are smaller, harder to track, harder to infiltrate. So we shouldn't necessarily view this as a sign of progress against these organizations. Well, you mentioned uh, splinters, breakaways, and and uh, reshuffling internally. And Joan also earlier talked a little bit about recruitment. But can you touch on, you know, how are you studying recruitment by these groups? You know, what does the mobilization look like from a local scale, and including Connecticut? Yeah, so studying recruitment is pretty tricky. We're limited to what we can observe, and that's really true of studying all terrorist and extremist organizations. But one thing I think we can say for certain uh, about what we've seen so far on the far right and their recruitment patterns is there's nothing unique to them and there's nothing unique to what they're doing in Connecticut either. Um, when it comes to Connecticut, you know, one thing we do know for sure is that the far right does have a presence here. In this past year, uh, a membership database was leaked from the Oath Keepers, a group that mainly recruits members of the military and police by drawing on the shared oath they take to the Constitution. And that's where they get their name from. And from that list, we learned that there were 15 members in Connecticut, which is probably at the lower end of the estimate and just from one organization. And this includes five in law enforcement, five from the military and five first responders. And the group that got this list didn't publicize other names, obviously. And we also have seen at least seven people from Connecticut arrested for taking part on January 6th. And, you know, apart from that, just from driving around over the last couple of years, not so much recently, I've personally seen stickers for the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and other groups in the far right. And so when it comes to recruitment, as Joan kind of mentioned, there's nothing unique to or particularly novel to what these groups are doing. You know, some things they're doing in person, like all extremist groups do. Um, they're going to political rallies where they might find sympathizers and to meetings of veteran and police officers who they're trying to recruit. And for many extremist groups, the vast majority of recruitment usually happens this way, through these kind of personal connections and people inviting their friends to meetings and by going to a meeting and really meeting uh, other people. We've also seen far-right groups trying other things as well, and this gets uh, more to Joan's work about how they're innovating their messaging and their outreach. And one of the things I found fascinating was that a couple of years ago, the Oath Keepers organized a campaign to assemble care packages with an Oath Keepers patch and a DVD to active duty military personnel. But they post memes, they write blog posts, they're on Reddit, and they publicly display their logos, like those bumper stickers I mentioned before. So people ask them about it. And that's the whole point, is they want you to ask about it. 
Um, and when they you do, they start with innocuous messages, as Joan mentioned, these memes, these funny things that are more palatable to the average person. And they don't immediately jump right into their preparations for civil war and their most extremist views. But, you know, the Oath Keepers, for instance, talk about their shared oath to the Constitution, to the government and building a community around that, which obviously appeals to many people. We've got about two minutes left, but I do want to ask, you know, you're on a college campus working as a university professor. Do you see any of that um, movement on campus and how do you talk to your students about it? Yeah, college campuses are pretty diverse. And so we see the entire political spectrum represented here. So we definitely see kind of far right, right end political groups visiting campus and so on. Amelia Nobilis, Charlie Kirk, uh, Turning Point USA will organize events and so on. But that political debate and controversy is one thing and far right extremism and violent organizations are another. And we generally don't see those extremist groups drawing much support from college age students. I think if you just look at photos from January 6th or from the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, you're not seeing too many young people in those groups. Um, and instead, they're going after people who are a bit more settled out of college and with experience and skills they want, like in law enforcement and military training. And, you know, when I talk to my students about this, um, I try to put in the put in a broad context for them. So in particular, when I teach my classes, um, it's often easy to think about this as a unique moment in time. What I try to do is put it in a much more historical perspective. We think about why people join extremist groups, the different types of extremism the U.S. has experienced over time from the um, in the 1960s, the anti-government movement, the 1990s with people like Timothy McVeigh, the jihadist threat in the 2000s. So I basically try to give students all that information they need to accurately understand what's going on and to recognize this is a serious issue, but maybe one that America has uh, experienced before, but maybe in a slightly different form. You've been listening to Dr. Evan Prokoski. He's an assistant professor at UConn and Joan Donovan, author of Mean Wars, the untold story of online battles upending democracy in America. I want to thank both of you for spending time with us today and helping us break this down. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.